Hello, I'm Richard Evans. I'm the provost of Gresham College, and I've been provost for six years now. So this is my last year, uh, and every year I deliver a lecture in the early summer, the provost lecture, which I've tried to focus on issues of contemporary concern like migration or terrorism. And this year, the final year, it's on populism. Now, for some years, populism has been a kind of buzzword. One politician after another has been called a populist, from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil to Viktor Orban in Hungary. Terms have been applied to left-wingers like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and to right-wingers like Donald Trump in the USA. It's even been applied to Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. Most commentators agree that populism is on the rise. Here, for example, you can see a graph of the increase in votes for populist parties across the world through the 20th century up to the present day. The two peaks in the 1930s and from around 2010 onwards, populist parties are averaging in elections about 35% uh, of the vote across the globe. Same time, there doesn't seem to be much agreement on what populism actually means. If it applies equally to left and right, then does it really mean anything at all? Is it just a style without a content? So what I want to do is to try and fix its meaning, to reflect on the reasons for its current popularity, and to try and understand the successes and failures of the political figures it's been used to describe. I'll ask whether populism is a threat to democracy. If so, in what ways and to what extent? Is populism just another way of describing democracy, the rule of the people? Is populism just defined by its critical attitude towards rule by elites? Or is it something distinctively different, something with its own, own characteristics? Now, uh, historically speaking, the term populism has two distinct origins. First of these go back to Russia in the 1870s and 1880s, when radical intellectuals known as the Narodniki, began to argue that the way forward for Russia was to eliminate the thin layer of aristocratic landowners, bureaucrats, military men, and other servants of the Tsarist aristocracy, leaving the vast mass of Russian peasantry to develop their own democratic institutions centered on the rural commune. In this way, the evils of capitalism, industrialization could be bypassed and Russia could go its own way separate from that of the West. Small groups of these populists went out into the villages to try and win over the people, but the peasants did not understand them, mostly turned them over to the authorities. And here's a picture by Ilya Rapin, the great Russian realist painter, of the arrest of a populist in 1892 with the Tsarist policeman inspecting a populist tract. So the movement, though it generated a lot of interesting ideas, was an abject failure in political terms. Disillusioned, the revolutionaries turned to violence instead, trying to bring down the Tsarist structures of rule by murdering officials and government ministers until their campaign culminated in the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Group that carried out this act, interestingly, called itself the People's Will. But what it represented, of course, was nothing of the kind. In reality, the members of the group were a tiny faction of radical intellectuals, the great mass of the people, the peasantry, 
had no understanding of attacks on the Tsar at all. Russian populists seemed, in any case, to a new generation of uh, radical intellectuals to be taking the wrong path. They were replaced by Marxists, by uh, intellectuals who embraced the uh, Industrial Revolution, intellectuals who thought with Marx that that would eventually lead to a revolution carried out by the urban working class that was just beginning to emerge in Russia. Still, the Russian populists didn't disappear entirely. Their ideas resemble those of their modern successors in a number of ways, particularly in their claim to represent and to be acting on behalf of the people against entrenched and exploitative elites. Now, the second, perhaps more important, origin of the term populism lies in America, where it was also a movement that placed the people, the rural community in particular, at its center. The populists were organized in the People's Party of the 1890s, and they argued that the economic woes suffered by farmers in the agricultural depression of the late 19th century was caused by a vast conspiracy of vested interests, as they put it, I'm quoting here, by extortionists, usurers and oppressors, marshaled from every nation under heaven, every instrumentality known to man, the state with its civil authority, learning with its lighted torch, armies with their commission to take life, instruments of commerce essential to commercial intercourse, the very soil upon which we live and move and have our being. All these things and more are being perverted and used to enslave and impoverish the people. Now by the people, they meant everybody, industrial workers included, but the American populists failed in practice to extend their base beyond the farmers of the Midwest. And like all American third parties, the populist parties soon uh, faded away, uh, particularly after the return of agricultural prosperity in uh, the late 1890s up to the First World War, as this cartoon shows. Still, here too, there were themes that recur in the populism of our own age. Once more, the evil machinations of self-serving elites, government, universities, the military, bankers, industrialists, elites that conspire to keep themselves in power, and the hollowness of the existing party system and structures of the state, the resentments of parts of the population that feel marginalized and neglected. The first obvious characteristic of populism then is that it is anti-elitist. Populists, whether they're right-wing or left-wing, claim that behind the elaborate structures of a representative democracy, general elections, political parties, national legislatures, supposedly independent judiciaries, bankers, business institutions, universities, educational systems, behind all of this <clears throat> lurk elites that are all linked together to control society and the economy for their own benefit. Often populists go further and claim that these elites are also linked to international interests that betray those of the nation and its people. Mainstream political parties might seem to oppose each other, but underneath the surface, they're all the same. Vehicles for the self-perpetuation of entrenched elites who are in politics for their own gain. 
Populism asserts the participatory rights of parts of the nation that feel left out. These themes can be identified in the rhetoric of Pat Buchanan in his presidential campaign of 2000, when referring to the federal government in Washington, he said, neither Beltway Party is going to drain this swamp. It's a protected wetland. They breed in it, they spawn in it. Buchanan took this phrase, in fact, from Ronald Reagan in his own successful campaign for the presidency some years earlier. And in turn, it's been taken up by Donald Trump. He used it repeatedly in his presidential campaign of 2016. Drain the swamp, in the case of the Trump campaign, turns out to mean somehow getting rid of a whole range of bugbears of the far or the extreme right wing in America, not just crime and corruption, but also the liberal financier George Soros, globalism, Islam, and mainstream broadcasting stations. Similar slogans to drain the swamp have been used by other American populists, Main Street versus Wall Street, for example, or uh, the silent majority. And we can find a comparable populist rhetoric in this country in connection with the Brexit campaign, which sought with some success to portray the UK's membership in the European Union as a policy mainly benefiting international elites and giving unelected bureaucrats in Brussels power over the British people. The British people, we were told, had had enough of experts, even if they worked for organisations like the Confederation of British Industry. These were in any case little more than mouthpieces for the European Union. The people, as defined by the Brexiteers, would take back control from the experts, both in London and in uh, Brussels. So populists claim that the establishment and the system of representative democracy is not really representative of the people. It gives us government stuff with Old Etonians, or in the USA, Wall Street billionaires. It's a system that makes it impossible to oust entrenched elites because essentially both political parties or all political parties are in the grip of the elites. It's certainly a feature common to all populists. But other political tendencies also take a similar line, or can do. You find it in Marxist revolutionary movements or in Islamic fundamentalism. Both these movements make a clear distinction between their supporters, even if they're in the majority, the proletariat, for example, or the faithful, and their opponents, the bourgeoisie in the case of Marxist movements or uh, the infidel in the case of Islamist movements. Both of them, in their different ways, regard representative democracy as a cloak for vested interests. What makes populism different is its claim to represent not just one particular group of people, however large it may be, the proletariat, for example, or the faithful, but all the people. Or to put it in another way, what makes populism different is its claim that its supporters are the people. Opponents and dissenters are not the people. They don't belong to it. Populism might start with the assertion of participatory rights and the representation of those who feel neglected by the conventional political process. 
but it typically expresses this assertion by claiming that these people are not just part of the nation, they are the nation, while the elites ultimately are not. So, for example, Brexiteers claim that the British people voted to leave the EU, though in fact, only just over 37% of the electorate did, as you can see from the lower chart in this illustration. Even if you discount the 27.9% of the electorate, 12 million people who did not vote, 52% of those who did vote in the 2016 referendum still doesn't equate to the British people. Nigel Farage said that the victory for the Brexits was a massive victory for the people against the establishment, a typical populist rhetoric, thus disqualifying the 48% who voted to remain from being part of the people. The Brexiteers' populist rejection of anyone who disagreed with them as being part of the people reached perhaps its most ridiculous extreme with a headline of the Daily Mail labeling three judges enemies of the people because they ruled that the government had to have the approval of parliament to leave the European Union. When the Brexiteers campaigned on the slogan, take back control, then this implied they didn't really mean to say that parliament or the British constitution should take back control. What they were expressing was the populist notion that the people as defined by themselves should take back control. Similarly, the Bertha campaign through which Donald Trump came into politics, tried to disqualify Barack Obama from running for the presidency by alleging he was not uh, an American citizen. So by implication, his supporters, backers, were not American either. In fact, uh, the whole campaign of Obama in this view was a Muslim attempt to take America away from the people. The country was under foreign occupation. The people had to vote for Trump to take it back. As the leading student of contemporary populism, Jan Bela Müller has argued, this absolutist ideology poses a clear threat to democracy. Now, of course, in a sense, all political parties claim to represent the people and implement their wishes against whatever opposition might come from vested interests. But democratic representative political systems are essentially pluralist. They rest on the acknowledgement that not everybody supports the party in government, and therefore that the views of opponents and the interests of minorities have to be respected. It's a notion summarized in the curious British phrase, the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. Populism doesn't respect the views of minorities. It doesn't acknowledge that there can be any such thing as a loyal opposition. It disqualifies its opponents as not belonging to the people at all. The populist Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, has rallied his supporters as he's increasingly got into political difficulties. Demonstrators in Brasilia, the capital, have recently called for a military coup to defend him. The Bolsonaro government, one of them says, only has us, the people. He doesn't have the media. He doesn't have Congress because the lawmakers are a bunch of rats. We have to do a big cleaning. No matter how few of them there may be, the supporters of populist politicians always describe themselves as the people, the silent majority, the nation, as Viktor Orban, the Hungarian populist politician, said when he lost an election in 2002. 
the nation cannot be in opposition. So he was in opposition for some time after that. The others who actually won the election, in his view, his opponents weren't part of the nation at all, despite the fact that they were in the majority in the election. Muller has um, made a very strong case for populism to be defined by its disqualification of its opponents as being legitimate in any way. But I don't agree with him that the stigmatization of minorities in itself is a key aspect of populism. And neither do I agree with another leading student of populism, Kasmuda, in his very short introduction to populism in the Oxford University Press series, where he identifies populist regimes as ethnocracies. In other words, regimes that promote the rule of one ethnic group, usually the majority over minorities. It's not necessarily populist to say, for example, that gypsies in Eastern Europe are not part of the people, although uh, regimes in Eastern Europe do. Such exclusions have a much longer and broader tradition, namely that of nationalism. The idea that a nation have its own state inevitably involves saying who belongs to the nation, who doesn't. Particularly whereas in most European countries, nationalism was based on language. So, for example, in 1848, German nationalists ruled out Czechs as part of the nation. Polish nationalists have ruled out Jews in the early 20th century and, and so on. The idea of the nation involved assimilating those who the majority did not accept as part of it, hence 19th century English attempts to suppress the Welsh language, for example, 19th century German, Russian or Austrian attempts to suppress Polish culture. That's the reason why the League of Nations, founded at the end of the First World War, was so concerned to legislate for the protection of national minorities, though it failed utterly to have any effect. It's true that, for example, Eastern European populist regimes in the present day exclude the Roma or the um, gypsy community from the nation, but this is a product of nationalism and it's been around for much longer than populism has. Populism can be racist. It's certainly the case that populists in some countries have exploited anti-immigrant feelings in some parts of the population. But this doesn't define populism in itself. What populism is concerned with is not so much ethnicity, though that may come into the picture, as ideas. Populists define the nation as those who agree with them politically, those who do not belong to the nation as those who don't agree with them. So the populists know what the people want. They articulate what they present as the sound, common-sense instincts of the people. And because of this intuitive grasp of the people's will, populists feel they don't need to work through elaborate electoral and constitutional systems. They prefer referendums which bypass representative democracy in favour of putting a simple, straightforward question framed to secure the expression of the people's will as they conceive of it. A referendum reflects the basic populist hostility to electing representatives who can decide for themselves what government can be formed and exercise their independent judgment on what policies to support. So there's a basic populist belief that policies have to be decided in direct communication between the people, as defined, of course, by the populists themselves, and their leaders without any intermediate institutions. 
The advantage of representative democracy is that laws can be framed with expert advice and after long and careful consideration. If the voters don't like them, they can vote out those who have framed them at the next election. Direct democracy, by contrast, is not rule-bound. It can't take account of the complexities of the problems facing modern societies. It also opens the way to political manipulation. As Mrs Thatcher, referring to the post-war Prime Minister Clement Attlee, said, perhaps the late Lord Attlee was right when he said that the referendum was a device of dictators and demagogues, a demagogue being by definition a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational argument or what we call today a populist. Of course, there are no such things as the desires and prejudices of ordinary people in a collective sense, since ordinary people are always deeply divided about what they want and what they think. But for populists, ordinary people do speak with one voice, a voice, of course, that is ventriloquized by the populists themselves. Populists in power will do their best to ensure that they get the correct results in any election they're obliged to contest. And if a populist loses an election, it must be because the other side has cheated. Populists don't accept the results of elections that go against them, as I quoted Viktor Orban saying in 2002. And Donald Trump, when he lost the Republican primary contest in 2016, claimed that the system was rigged against him. When Hillary Clinton won nearly three million more votes than he did in the election itself, he explained the result by the Democrats' use of fraudulent postal votes, for which, of course, there was no evidence. Populist leaders even claim a total identity between themselves and the people. As Rudolf Hess proclaimed at the Nuremberg Rally in 1934, the Nuremberg Rally of the Nazi Party, of which he was deputy leader, the party is Hitler, but Hitler is Germany. Germany is also Hitler. Or the Venezuelan left-wing populist Hugo Chavez's slogan, Chavez is the people. So in populist movements, there's no discussion, no debate, no committees or congresses to formulate policy. None of this is necessary. The leader expresses the will of the people and the party follows. And a prime example of this in the UK was provided by Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which won the largest number of seats in the 2019 European elections in Britain. The members have no say in the formulation of policies. These are just decided by Farage himself. Populist leaders don't have to come from the people. They often can be members of the elites themselves, like Donald Trump, or career politicians under a representative system, as Viktor Orban originally was. What defines them is the relationship they claim with the people. They emerge and tend to triumph when there's a major economic crisis, as with the bank crash of 2008, or the depression of the early 30s, which leaves significant numbers of people blaming the elites for their plight. Or they emerge where democratic political culture has shallow roots, as in Hungary, which had not experienced democracy at all before 1989, or Turkey or Poland where political parties are weak, as in Italy, which had seen the traditional political system dominated by the Christian Democrats and the communists collapse 
after the fall of the Berlin Wall and populists like Beppe Grillo, Silvio Berlusconi emerging to take their place. Where significant parts of the electorate have come to suffer in real and emotional terms from rapid and for them damaging change, whether it's the decay of traditional heavy industry and the communities that supported or cultural alienation through the arrival of immigrants who speak another language or practice another religion, more generally, the advocacy of multiculturalism by liberal elites on similar terms, the emergence of issues such as the legalization of abortion or same-sex marriage, which uh, traditional religious groups feel uh, outrage morality. Above and beyond this, however, a crucial factor in the success of populism has been its ability to secure the collaboration of existing parties and what one might regard as significant parts of the establishment. The prime example of this is Donald Trump, who's initially scorned by the Republican Party, the Grand Old Party, as it's known in the States. But after he looked to be succeeding, won over its unquestioning support, deepening the already serious divisions between Republicans and Democrats in the process. Similarly, Hitler, a populist, even if he was also much more than that, would not have come to power without the collaboration of a political elite that shared his desire to dismantle the democratic system of the Weimar Republic. Indeed, his government, appointed on the 30th of January 1933, was actually, at the beginning, a coalition of conservatives and Nazis, in which the Nazis were in a minority in the cabinet. Boris Johnson is not a populist by any means, since he operates within the normal constraints of the British constitution and British institutions, even if on occasion he threatens to disrupt them. But at the same time, over the last few years, electoral pressure has pushed the Conservative Party to adopt some of the policies and ideas of Farage's Brexit movement, not only on that, but also on issues like immigration. The more populist parties win votes, the harder mainstream parties try to win back the votes by copying some of their policies and some of their rhetoric. It's only in recent years that populists have actually come to power. But some of them have held the reins of government long enough for us to be able to see what they actually do when they're in charge. Populism proposes simple solutions to complex political problems. Surely then they're bound to fail. But in political terms, this has turned out in many respects not to be the case. The major reason for the political success of some populists in power has been the ruthlessness with which they've moved against the key institutions of the democratic state. Politicians like Viktor Orban in Hungary, Jaroslav Kaczynski in Poland, or Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey have moved quickly to destroy the independence of the judiciary and the police, take over the media, turn a neutral civil service into a partisan instrument of their own power, and curbed the freedom of teaching and learning in schools and universities. Turkey's case, for example, by the summary dismissal of 15,000 educational workers in the aftermath of the failed coup attempt in 2016. Since they claim to be the exclusive representatives of the people, populists in power feel justified in reducing the central institutions of civil society to passive recipients of their own orders. They regard criticism of their policies as illegitimate because ultimately it's criticism of what the people want as defined, of course, by themselves. 
Populists feel this makes it justified either to take over the independent press or pass laws muzzling it, or arrest critical journalists, as with, for example, a cartoonist who'd been campaigning against the corruption of the populist Modi government in India. They can fill key positions with their own friends, relatives, and clients, because this is the best way of ensuring that the people's will is implemented without interference from outside. And institutions like the judiciary or universities or the press and the media are muzzled and attacked because, of course, they represent the elites, which populists feel they themselves have been elected to disempower. Of course, this leads inevitably to corruption and nepotism and clientelage on a massive scale, as populist strongmen siphon off state funds to feather their own nests. But this in no way compromises their popularity with supporters. If they're corrupt, what does this matter in comparison to their ability to get things done? Similarly, populists can also undermine the functioning of the state itself. So this is regarded as the instrument of the elites. Hence, Donald Trump, for example, has repeatedly fired senior officials who he feels don't follow his every wish. He's been through four national security advisors in under four years, four White House chiefs of staff, three directors of the FBI, four attorney generals, and so on. He's left so many offices of state unfilled that one commentator has observed empty offices are the new norm in Washington, D.C. Populism is an ideology, but it's one that can be attached to other ideologies and usually is. For example, the Venezuelan socialist Hugo Chavez described himself as a Marxist. As president, he carried out socialist policies like economic redistribution, worker participation, welfareism, land reform. It would be wrong to describe these as populist in themselves, since populists can equally implement policies which, like those of Donald Trump, favor the wealthy and take away welfare provision from the poor. Chavez is typically populist in his self-portrayal as a champion of the people against capitalist elites, including international capitalism. And once in power, he clamped down on opposition, attacked outside agents, above all the USA, which he accused of undermining his rule, or in other words, undermining the people, and he ruled in effect by decree. His massive spending on reforms depended on oil revenues, and when these collapsed, the successor Nicolas Maduro only remained in power by force, with rapid impoverishment driving millions to leave the country. Thousands of extrajudicial killings repressing opposition and conspiracy theories about American plots to overthrow him, rallying his supporters behind him. In fact, populist leaders often keep their supporters' allegiance through constantly generating a sense of crisis and threat that makes backing them the best way to stay safe. Conspiracy theories are a major tool of control here. One populist leader after another has manufactured an imaginary enemy, usually outside the country, whom they accuse of fermenting conspiracies to destroy the country. For Viktor Orban in Hungary, it's the Hungarian-American financier George Soros, whose global support for liberal causes makes him an enemy of the state. For Erdogan, it's the American-based Turkish scholar Fethullah Gulen. For Trump, it's the Chinese, whom he accuses of manufacturing the coronavirus. For Brexiteers, it's the EU. Once again, it's Donald Trump, who's the conspiracy theorist-in-chief, 
After all, he began his career in politics as a champion of the birther movement, continued by alleging, among other things, that a convicted sex offender, Jeffrey Epstein, who killed himself in jail, was murdered on the orders of Hillary Clinton. Or as Trump's son said, the coronavirus is the product of a Democratic Party plot. Quote, they'll milk it every single day between now and November the 3rd, the election date. And guess what? After November the 3rd, the coronavirus will magically all of a sudden go away and disappear. Or as Trump himself said in 2012, the concept of global warming, I'm quoting here, was created by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive and much more besides. Populists appeal to emotion rather than reason. They scorn the usual rules of evidence and rationality and raise their own instincts over those of experts because they regard their own instincts as the instincts of the people. So they have no regard for truth or reason or measured or considered judgment. Nor do they hesitate to advocate, either directly or by implication, violence against their critics. And they belittle their opponents by attaching nicknames to them. So Donald Trump calls Hillary Clinton Crooked Hillary, Joe Biden Sleepy Joe, just like Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels called the socialist police chief in Berlin, Bernhard Weiss, Isidore to emphasize his Jewish origins. One populist American politician called his rival in the election for mayor of Chicago, Aaron Chermak, Tony Maloney. Populist politicians often deliberately use vulgar and insulting language to stress the fact that they don't belong to the elites or subscribe to their values or standards or styles of behavior. Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines and other populist leader, for example, habitually uses swear words and insults in public. So criticized by Barack Obama, president of the USA, for ordering and encouraging the extrajudicial murder of drug dealers on a large scale, he called Obama a son of a whore, giving rise to a diplomatic incident. And recently, Bolsonaro in Brazil has similarly used vulgar language and swear words to express his views. Populists project themselves as men of the people, even when they're not. Just as Nigel Farage, a public school-educated city banker, likes to be photographed in a pub environment downing a pint of bitter and advocates the legalization of smoking in popular institutions like pubs. Rather like the American populist Huey Long, who made a point of drinking pot liquor, a southern broth drunk by the very poor, which he described as the juice that remains in the pot after greens and other vegetables are boiled with proper seasoning, delicious, invigorating, and soul and body sustaining. Along as a, a left-wing rather than a right-wing Southern populist, he ran Louisiana like a fiefdom, he devoted public spending to welfare, job creation during the depression of the thirties. He was a college educated, qualified and practicing lawyer. But he wore pajamas to formal occasions instead of a suit, and even though a senator publicly demanded the removal of his name from the Washington Social Register. Like other populists, Huey Long often attacked the press, which he regarded as the mouthpiece of the establishment, and even got his bodyguards to beat up reporters he didn't like. As governor of Louisiana, Long replaced state officials with his own cronies. When he was elected senator in 1932 and had to resign as governor, he 
declared his replacement, who happened to be one of his enemies, to be an imposter. And he installed one of his own men in the office of governor. He seized the ballot boxes during the election and manipulated the result, getting so many of his men into the state legislature that he referred to congressmen in Louisiana as my trained seals. Like other populists, Long claimed to be clearing the enemies of the people out of the road of progress. Neither he nor his supporters cared very much about how he did this. Another American populist, William H. Murray, called himself Alfalfa Bill, using folksy language in his attacks on the elites. I will plow straight forward and blast all the stumps, he said. The common people and I can lick the whole lousy gang. As governor of Oklahoma, of course, he advocated improvements to the protection of agriculture, hence his nickname, Alfalfa Bill. And in the early 20s, he appointed 20 of his relatives to state offices, replied to allegations that he'd appointed over a thousand new bureaucrats when he promised to cut the bureaucracy, uh, just lies. He also declared states of emergency on a number of occasions, mobilizing the state troopers when things got difficult for him. If all of this sounds familiar, it's because Donald Trump stands in a long tradition of American populists. Even Trump's narcissism and his craving for attention are less personal character flaws or characteristics of a reality TV star than typical traits of American populists. Huey Long, for instance, was described as intensely and solely interested in himself. He had to dominate every scene he was in, said one commentator, and every person around him. He craved attention. He'd go to almost any lengths to get it. Many populists have been adept at gaining starring roles in the media. Staying in the public eye is crucially important for Trump as well. He craves high ratings for the public, and when they don't materialize, he'll manufacture them, as with his inauguration in Washington, D.C., which he claimed had been attended by more people than any other inauguration before. When it was pointed out that the photographic record showed his predecessor, Barack Obama, had attracted far larger crowds at his inauguration, and so Trump's claims are bogus, Trump's spokesperson, rather than admitting he'd been lying, described his claims as alternative facts. When populists get into government, they're ill-prepared for dealing with a real crisis because they scorn the advice of experts and civil servants and prefer to rely instead on their own instincts, which, of course, they identify with those of the people. During the present worldwide coronavirus, it's the populist regimes that have usually failed to impose the lockdown measures that have proved in countries like New Zealand and South Korea to be the most effective means of keeping the pandemic under control. So Trump began by denying the existence of the epidemic altogether. Bolsonaro in Brazil still does. Populist reactions, of course, are not uniform. Viktor Orban in Hungary has used the opportunity to pass emergency laws giving him dictatorial powers. Nor can you identify failure to deal effectively with a pandemic entirely with populism. Sweden has misguidedly relied on citizens to take their own measures, while the UK fatally delayed unrolling a policy because the government and its advisers believed the British people wouldn't tolerate a lockdown, another consequence of the myth of British exceptionalism that powered the Brexit movement. These continental Europeans might accept restrictions on their freedom 
but we Brits won't uh, completely misguided and mistaken belief. All fascists are undoubtedly populists. You only have to look at the rise of Hitler to see the same characteristics, self-identification with the people, stigmatization of opponents as non-members of the national community, hostility to state institutions and democratic norms, disregard for mainstream science, disdain for the truth. But all populists are not fascists, though some commentators, I think, mistakenly think they are. Besides all of these things, fascism was also a militaristic movement with violence and aggression at its heart, the product, above all, of the brutalizing effect of the First World War. Its very aims were militaristic, driving forward the conquest of Europe, like Hitler, or creating a new Roman Empire in the Mediterranean, as with Mussolini. War was the ultimate aim of fascism. Populists might flirt with violence, even employ it on a minor scale. Like Hitler or Mussolini, they reject international institutions. The international order dominated by the League of Nations between the wars was destroyed by Hitler and Mussolini. Trump has left the Paris Climate Accords. He's destroyed the Iran nuclear deal. He treats the European Union as an enemy and he's abandoning the World Health Organization. If he gets a second term, he'll probably take the USA out of the United Nations as well, in my guess. Orban has repudiated the 1919 Treaty of Trianon, laid claim for Hungary on large areas of territory which the treaty assigned to other countries, such as Romania, for example. Trump might encourage armed protesters to storm legislatures in American states demanding an end to the lockdown, but I don't see him putting hundreds of thousands of armed and uniformed stormtroopers onto the streets attacking and killing Democrats, whereas Hitler certainly did that in the equivalent situation in Germany in the early 30s. In terms of foreign policy, Trump's isolationism involves withdrawing troops from conflict zones not using them to conquer other countries. He might appeal to the racist instincts of his supporters by limiting immigration, building a wall on the Mexican border, and using tough rhetoric against protesters in the current wave uh, of protests, Black Lives Matter, across the United States. He might even construct concentration camps to hold illegal migrants in shameful and degrading conditions, but I don't see him putting them in gas chambers as Hitler did with the Jews, or dropping poison gas on them uh, like Mussolini did with the Ethiopians when his armies invaded the country in the mid-1930s. All the same, although it's not fascism, populism is, I believe, a clear and present danger to democracy. Countries like the UK and the USA, with strong and deep-rooted democratic institutions, it's still possible to resist it. Countries where these institutions are relatively weak, it's a different matter. As Jan Werner Müller says, it's important to examine the flaws in the democratic process that populists have identified and carry out reforms to correct them. We need to engage critically with the populists themselves too, to develop effective means of countering them and exposing them for what they are, enemies of democracy. Thank you very much. You've just been listening to the last lecture Professor Sir Richard J. Evans has delivered as provost 
of Gresham College as he's come to the end of his statutory term of office. Richard started out with Gresham College in 2006 as visiting professor of history before serving as Gresham Professor of Rhetoric from 2009 to 2013, speaking on historical subjects including plagues in history, the Victorians, the Age of Empire, and war and peace in Europe. He has a global reputation as a historian. His books have been translated into more than 20 languages, and he was knighted in 2012 for services to scholarship. His reputation has attracted other leading experts in their fields to speak at Gresham during his tenure. He's been a tireless promoter of the college, both in the press and on social media. And over the past six years, he's led Gresham College through a period of major change, with the college focusing its attention on reaching new audiences, securing new funding, and growing as an organization. He leaves the college in a sound position with a strong vision for the next five years. So from all of us, a huge thank you to Richard for all that he has done. Um, my sadness is saying goodbye to Richard is balanced by my joy in welcoming Simon Thurley as Gresham's new provost. Uh, Many of you um, will need no introduction to Simon. He's been visiting professor of the built environment at Gresham College since 2009, and he's attracted packed-out audiences for his very popular lectures. He's also previously been curator of historic royal palaces, director of the Museum of London, and chief executive of English Heritage. Simon has great experience leading institutions, and we are delighted to welcome him on board to lead Gresham. Thank you.